Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. I wasn't here last week, and it feels like a long time since I've preached to you. I don't know, missing one Sunday, how how that creates such a gap in my week because I get, I'm so used to preaching every single time or often. We were, as I mentioned earlier, the staff pastors, uh, some of the elders and some laymen um, from our church headed down to Southern California to the Shepherds Conference. So we've been conferencing all week, me Monday through uh, Friday, and it was kind of like being in college. You wake up early and you're there all day and you don't finish till after dinner time, sometimes seven or eight, and then you're staying up talking and ingesting all that you learned. And it was really a celebration of John MacArthur's 50 years at the church, 50 years in faithfulness. And so it was a lot of reminiscing. He is turning this summer 80 years old. And so it was kind of an amazing testimony of any pastor, let alone MacArthur, but anybody who is there at a church one place for 50 years and carries the torch that long as a model to faithfulness. And one of our themes as we prayerfully consider this service is the theme of faithfulness. And we, coming out of that um, charge, feel that, um, that kind of sweet pressure to be faithful in a culture that's upside down, in a culture that is unfaithful. We are trying to be faithful. And one of the themes of faithfulness that we want to highlight this morning is the faithfulness in parenting and raising children in the Lord and faithful in children's ministry here, faithfulness to reach the next generation. Because as one generation is going to pass, you have others that are coming behind and the legacy that we leave is really what matters in the kingdom of God, right? It's not just about the event of today. It's, it's setting uh, the course for there to be longevity in gospel ministry, gospel outreach. There's a lot of Alaskans that go down to Southern California to try to warm up. It was cold, uh, not, you know, relatively speaking, but it was rainy and windy and all of that. But uh, hearts were really excited and lifted together as we uh, fellowshiped. And, uh, you know, it, this is a nice place to come back to. There were 4,500 pastors, elders, lay people down there representing their churches, their ministries, their battles, their, their dynamics. And uh, we have a sweet fellowship up here. And it was really good to be down there, but it's even better to be up here. And there's no place like home. And uh, we want to highlight uh, faithfulness in family ministry and highlight faithfulness in, in parenting. And you can see in your bulletin, there's a sanctity of life um, title there. And it's the idea of in a culture that doesn't seem to care for children at all, even those who are still yet in the womb, we need to care for those children and the children who are born and the children as they grow up and be a church where children can know Christ. Amen. We need to be that place. There was a statistic I read a while ago. It's by Dr. Jim Slack, a Southern Baptist foreign missionary uh, leader. And he had a Gallup survey report where he said 19 out of 20 people who become Christians did so before the age of 25. Who's, who's that in here? Who came to know Christ before you were 25? All right, a lot, a lot. And then it says, uh, 
Let's see here. Christians did so before 25. At age 25, one in 10,000 will become believers. At age 35, one in 50,000. So who became a Christian after 25? 25 and older. Okay. All right. It's holding true here. At age 45, one in 200,000. Who at age 45 or later? Yeah. See? Wow. Statistics. I can't believe it's coming true. At 55, one in 300,000. At 75, one in 700,000. So who after 55? And who... There we go. I see that hand. Now we're Baptists this morning. Okay. And who after 75? Anybody that... It's dark in here. It'd be amazing. But it really is a testament to how crucial it is to be faithful to preach the gospel, live the gospel in front of children and win children to Christ. Now, why are children at an age where they come to Christ? Well, they're so deeply impressionable, right? They're so open. They're the sponge for all kinds of information. And we need to be giving them gospel information so that they will love the Lord their God for all of their lives. We know the Bible talks about God being sovereign over salvation of all people of all ages, and it gives the widest net for people to be saved. And yet, at the same time, it's our job to win children while they are children. It is. It is. Whether you've been blessed to have children or not have children, children are in our midst. We are a church family, and children should be a real priority. Biblically speaking, we're talking about this at a parent baby dedication at the very end of the service. Deuteronomy 6 speaks of this. It was the Shema, the hero Israel passage where the children of Israel going into the, the promised land heard the words to teach children diligently as you're talking, sitting, laying down, rising up. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Matthew 21, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared them for praise. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes who were condemning children, interrupting temple worship. What are they doing? Why are they talking? Jesus is, no, out of their mouths, the Lord has prepared praise. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. When you have a gospel citizen, when you have a parent in the home who is a believer, A child moves from being unclean or just saturated by world to a believer in the home where it's like a torch that goes close to a heart that's cold and it can warm the heart of a child to being what the Bible says is holy. People, children become Christians. I always sort of anchor my faith in the idea that children will come to know Christ where there's a believer in the home because why would God put a believer in a home with a child if he didn't otherwise want that child to come to faith in Christ? Obviously, there's no guarantees, but in the sovereignty of God, I'd like to think of it that way. God puts you in the sphere of influence in a child's life for a reason. Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Then verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Every parent is under a divine 
mandate to pursue, win, train, and raise their children in the Lord, to teach them. This window of time is a prime time. Children who do not come under gospel influence, whether parents are neglecting their duties or whether they just are not around Christians, they build constructs that are hard to tear down later on, right? They build mindsets. They build callous that's difficult to penetrate. So how urgent are we to be for children? Obviously, we have a Christian school. We have a 100-plus child-attended Awana every week. We have a children's Sunday school program. We have parenting classes. What drives all of this? Why should we care about kids? We have a culture that seems to be less and less concerned for kids, doesn't it? More calloused against children. They're a bother. We have more young adults who are trying to act like children and more older people who are ignoring children altogether when we should view children as being in a very special age. We need to have the attitude that the Lord Jesus had towards children. And I don't know of a better passage to go to than Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So I'd invite you to turn there. Let's see how urgent Jesus was towards children. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Mark's gospel is a gospel I studied and this passage struck me as the Lord Jesus made himself accessible in spite of the disciples' rebuke to say, don't be accessible. Jesus needs to be inaccessible. And Jesus became accessible to children. Jesus gave a stinging, scathing, indignant rebuke to the disciples, bringing everything to a screeching halt. You got to understand the context to know really what was going on here. You have parents who saw Jesus and came in mass as he's on the road to Jerusalem. He's in a very accessible um, path and journey in this three-year ministry. And he's very vulnerable. And parents are literally, the, the Greek word is the idea of being brought toward or lifted. The word is pharaoh, prospero. It's lifted towards Jesus. The scene here is not one of the flannel graph scene where Jesus is like Santa at the mall having one child at a time and blessing and, okay, next, next. No, this is a desperate scene where parents with children who have diseases and children who have no access to good medicine or antibiotics, children who perhaps are demonized, like the demonized child who was throwing himself in the water and the fire, they were desperate to get their child to Jesus because they knew 
help could come from him and only him for these kinds of helps. They were wanting physical blessing and physical care for their children and also spiritual care for their kids like any good parent wants for their children. And so they're thrusting their children towards Jesus. Why were they doing this? Well, this comes out of the Old Testament biblical tradition of laying on of hands. And in the days of Noah, you remember Noah's curse on Ham, the father of Canaan for immorality that was committed against Noah. It was the son looking upon his father's nakedness, even though his father was inebriated. Consequently, Noah blessed and conferred a blessing on Shem and Japheth and a curse conferred on to Ham, Genesis 9 says. Isaac blessed his son Jacob, but did not bless Esau. Do you remember that? Where Esau, out of a passion for his own flesh, sold his own birthright. And so Jacob was blessed, even though he was duped in that account Isaac was. Joseph was reunited with his father, Jacob, in the biblical account, Genesis 48. And Jacob laid hands on Joseph's sons, but Jacob's laying on of hands was crisscrossed. It's a unique setting where his right hand went on the head of Ephraim and the left hand on Manasseh, gestures which determined blessing and cursing in the trajectory of their lives and their lineage, more importantly. The early church recognized apostles as those who were set apart and blessed to lead and serve. The elders of the church have the ministry of laying on of hands of new elders as defined in the pastoral epistles. So Jesus' ministry, out of all of the biblical accounts of laying on of hands, his whole ministry set the stage for this. It shows the significance of physical touch. Turn back with me to Mark 5, where you have the account of Jesus laying hands on Jairus's daughter. Verse 21, he, Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and Note the passion here. He implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him and the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Well, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Again, touch is this means of connection and blessing. Verse 31, it says, and the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched me. So the woman fell down and confessed that she had done it and she was healed by the Lord. But then later you have the scene where Jesus comes to the little girl. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion 
people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. She was dead. He was speaking of the fact that she was going to come back to life. They laughed at him and he, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Again, caring for her physical needs and bringing her back to life. What a spiritual act of God, something that obviously she would never forget. The parents would never forget that. They were loved. And then in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, if you follow in the flow of Jesus' healing ministry, you have the little boy who had the unclean spirit. Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he'd been up there with Peter and James and John and and had shown his glory and revealed to them his divine nature, though fully human, fully divine. And at the bottom of the mountain, you have the disciples who were in a quandary because they were trying to cast out the demon out of this little child. And the narrative says that they were unable to do it and that the father came up to Jesus bringing the boy Verse 17, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Jesus in exasperation, oh, faithless generation. Then he says, bring him to me. He brought the boy and when the spirit saw him immediately convulsed the boy, a kingdom encounter here, kingdom dynamic, you have the presence of Christ. So you have the demons rising up and he fell on the ground and rolled over and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how horrible raising a child who is demonized? And obviously the dad knew he was demonized, demon-possessed. The dad knew this wasn't a natural thing. And the child forever was throwing himself into the water, into the fire. How horrible. If you've ever lifeguarded, if you've ever watched for your child's safety as he, he, he or she crosses the road, this is a demonized child being thrown into these life-threatening situations. It's often cast him in the fire and the water to destroy him. Verse 22. Imagine how many times the, the father threw himself into harm's way. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Not just the child, help us. Do you see that? It's a ministry to the parent. Jesus, seeing that he said, if you can, all things, he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus, here it is, 
took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Again, the touch from Jesus. Now look with that as a greater context of the passion, the emotion of the crowds, the desperation of the people to just get their child touched by Jesus. They knew these stories. Word was traveling fast. They knew the little girl had been raised. They knew this little boy had been healed. So they want this for their children too. What do the disciples do? I mean, the urgency of the parents getting their children to Jesus is matched by a sharp contradiction. Look at verse 13. They were bringing their children, lifting their children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Oh, parents, stand down. The Lord's got real work to do. It's a sharp rebuke. It's the same word that's used of Michael the archangel who rebuked Satan in Jude 9. The Lord rebuke you. It's the same word used by the Pharisees, more appropriate here to what the disciples were doing. When they rebuked Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, Jesus' disciples attempted to control the parents and they were attempting to control Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you don't need to do this. This is not worth your time. What was Jesus' response? When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Don't be sort of lulled to sleep by that proper term, indignant. Jesus was angry. He was angry in the sense of godly anger. Be angry and sin not. I don't think Jesus was out of control, but he was indignant. He was angry at the disciples' sin of pride. He was indignant at being controlled. He cut through it and was commanding to be accessible. He's making two points here. The first is that children are a clear priority. They are the ones for whom the kingdom belongs. You have disciples who are acting arrogantly. Let's just set you aside for a second, disciples, and put the children at center stage. The children are, one, are the ones for whom the, the priority of the kingdom is, belongs to them. And then he goes on, and we're going to unpack this, verse 15, to say, if you want to be part of this kingdom, you have to enter it like a child does. And this is the example of entering the kingdom. If you want heaven, if you want salvation, it needs to look just like what you just rebuked. It's a sharp contradiction. You have to come like a child does. This is the difference between the true gospel and a false gospel. The disciples at this point were exercising a false gospel of control, legalism works, stay back. Accessing Jesus this way is the wrong way. They were gatekeepers of the kingdom, or they thought they were. But by contrast, the exact opposite is true. Children were being presented by parents, but they were being presented as helpless. They could not help themselves. The true gospel is coming to Jesus in utter helplessness, utter 
dependence. Do you see that? There's a difference between trying to control your life and make things work out for you and coming on the basis of your need for mercy and my need for mercy. It's always that way. It's grace. It's through what Jesus does for you, not what you do for yourself. Whoever does not receive, this is verse 15, the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in enter it. It begs the question, question that's on the heart of many parents who either have lost a child through an early age or a disease or a miscarriage. Do children, it says they belong to the kingdom Do children who die before expressing faith in the Lord Jesus, do they go to heaven or do they go to hell or do we not know? And I believe this text, along with many others, tells us that children who die before being able to express saving faith, perhaps mentally handicapped who are childlike in their minds, same category, that they immediately go to heaven. They, ought to, they go to heaven because the kingdom is for them. Well, prove it. You say prove it. All right, well, I'll try. David's testimony uh, that children are conceived in sin, it's undeniable. Psalm 51.5, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses of sins. So sin is a barrier for all of humankind going to heaven. Mankind is under the curse of Adam. And at the same time, you have a narrative in 2 Samuel 12 that talks about David's response to his child's, his baby's death. You might turn over there, 2 Samuel 12. It's a very emotional scene. The Lord had been afflicted, verse 15. The Lord had afflicted, I should say, the child that Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bore to David. It was through the adulterous affair. David was deeply grieved. The child was sick. David's described as weeping, fasting, praying all night. He wouldn't be moved by the elders. He, he couldn't be dealt with. He couldn't be touched. He had a position on the ground, prostrate in prayer. Servants found his childhood died and assumed based on David's emotional state that David would hurt himself. King David was in trouble. It says in verse 19, when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped and then went on his to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David is resting in the reality of 
the finality of death, but death is not the final, final end of the story. Where that child has gone, David will go. And that's the hope that we have with lost loved ones. David wasn't calloused. He was acting in faith. 2 Samuel 12, 23 is a different, I mean, 2 Samuel 18, 33 is a different story. His son Absalom, who was 40 and who had committed insurrection against David's kingdom, was ultimately caught in the thicket, as you remember, by his hair. And David, as the field general and king, basically had to allow for his son to be speared to death, executed. What was David's response? In this case, it says he was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate, verse 33 of 2 Samuel 18. He wept and he went and said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I was with some young men and I was uh, in a discipleship setting and they asked shouldn't under Old Testament law, David have been executed for committing adultery? It's a great question. Execution for David would have been a mercy for him compared to this kind of grief over his son. Why? Because he knew his son was going to be punished in hell. It's a great contrast You have different stories that point out God's plan for a child as yet in the womb. You have this scene in in the Gospels, Luke 1, 40 through 44, where you have the impregnated Elizabeth and impregnated Mary, and they're together as um, expecting mothers and, and the... John the Baptist, the baby in Elizabeth, jumps in the womb, leaps at Mary's voice because he was in the presence of Christ. That's a unique situation. That's a unique story. But it just, again, shows the providential work of God and love and acknowledgement of a life in the womb. You have Galatians 1.15, Paul saying, when he who had set apart, set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace. Paul was set apart. He was known to be one who would be saved and be an apostle. So it's not a stretch for us to believe that Jesus knows and cares for the ones that he created. He invented. He created. He gave life. He gives breath. He gives a soul to that life in the womb. It's not a stretch for us to believe that if that little life is snuffed out prematurely before that child can profess Christ, that that life goes to heaven. In Jonah 4, 11, at the end of that story, there is an acknowledgement of 120,000 children in Nineveh not knowing the right hand from their left. And God preserved that community and acknowledged that 120,000 population of children. Ezekiel 16, those children that were being sacrificed to Molech, this evil God where people under this witchcraft worship were sacrificing children to Molech. And God in Ezekiel 16, 20 through 21, calls these children. He says that you slaughtered, he calls them my 
children. These ones that have been delivered up as an offering by fire, they're my children. So how do we reconcile that in all in Adam's race, including infants, are born under Adam's curse, and yet infants who die without expressing faith are members of God's kingdom? How do we put that together? Because both realities are very biblically evident. Well, the Bible teaches that man is dead under Adam's curse, but the Bible also teaches that man is judged according to his deeds. Judgment is found in Revelation 20, verse 13, where it says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. This is the great white throne judgment. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So infants, there is a sense in which the accountability comes in judgment for the sins that they're committing. Al Mohler, he was just down at the Shepherds Conference as a speaker. He talks about the Israelites' wilderness rebellion, referencing Deuteronomy 1. He says, after the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, God sentenced sentence that generation to die in the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. Not one of, your, of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land I swore to give your fathers. However, this was not all. God specifically exempted young children and infants from this sentence and explained why he did so. So you have teenagers and children who were part of that first wandering wilderness, rebellious, complaining generation, that they are not sentenced to the same death sentence that the rest were where they were laid low in the wilderness. They were able to go into the promised land. He says, Muller does, moreover, your little ones who said would become prey and you sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. I think this was Moeller quoting the passage in Deuteronomy. The little ones, they shall possess it because they had no knowledge of good and evil. You know, I was at a funeral one time in the lower 48 and it was a little child who had gone out during, uh, she was probably two or three, and she had gone out during a vacation time, during a nap time, and gone into a swimming pool and drowned. And she died, and she was a lifeless little girl in a small casket. And the mother and father, um, ironically, had the last name Sorrows, and the mother's last name, maiden name, was Pain. So it was Pain and Sorrows. And they're standing over the casket in faith, and testifying of God's grace and mercy because they believed she was in heaven. This is the blessing that Christians receive because we have biblical knowledge of the future, the afterlife, the promise of reunion. And we all walked by and we were sad, but we were trusting the Lord in that funeral. The dad ultimately, after being pinned down by some machinery on his job site, gave his full life to the Lord in full-time ministry and serves as a pastor Spurgeon, he said, heaven is the ultimate comfort if you've lost, lost a child. He said, let every mother and father present know that Christ is with the child. 
If God has taken it away from you in its infant days, many of you are parents who have children in heaven. He says, is it not a desirable thing that you should go there too? Mother, unconverted mother, from the battlements of heaven, your child beckons you to paradise. Father, ungodly, impenitent father, the little eyes that once looked joyously on you, look down upon you now. And the lips which scarcely learn to call you father, sealed by silence of death, may be heard as with a still small voice. Father, must we forever be divided? Does not nature itself put a longing that you may be bound in the bundle of life with your own children? Listen, this is an important comfort. And as Deeply important as this is to understand, there's something of deeper and greater importance in this text and in the lesson that Jesus is conveying with what was going on in Mark chapter 10. Look back again, verse 15 says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter it. This is the deeper issue. This is the main point of the text. It's that there is only one real requirement for entering the kingdom of God, and that is that you come into it as a child. I want to meddle for a second. I know that there is a lot to be gained from living here in such a magnificent place as Alaska. It's gorgeous. It, is, it has unparalleled beauty unparalleled. I was getting texted pictures while down in Southern California of the sunrise that lasts a long time here, cutting through the trees and with the mountains as the background. And I'm going, hey, this is where I live. (laughs) But at the same time, there is a lot of pride in Alaska. There's Alaskan pride of, I can do it in my own strength and I can survive here and I can build here and pioneer here. And though there is a redemptive side to being strong and acting like men, Jesus at the same time says, be careful. Don't fall prey to the pride of your own self-importance. Lay that aside and come to Christ as a little child. There are children in this room. They are the model of faith to us, what it looks like. These children, it shows, didn't even have the ability to crawl up into Jesus' lap. Whether they were demonized, whether they were sick, or whether they were on an infant level, they're being born up. That's the language. Born up and born toward Jesus, lifted up into his arms. That's, that's being saved. You're being carried into the kingdom, into the lap of Jesus. What are children like? Well, they're helpless. They're exhausting. I know. They are. When Judy was raising our children when they were smaller and in diapers, and the three were three boys under three and all in diapers, her Facebook account under occupation said waste management. (laughs) This humor keeps us alive during these days of sleep deprivation. They're hungry. They can't order a pizza. They're going to die if you don't feed them. So they scream for their lives. A child's dependence is a picture of faith. 
Even our own cries for Christ are really cries for God to save us. The faith is instrumental, but the faith is not what's saving us. Instrumentally, it's, it's what we are required to exercise, but God is the one who saves us. Save me, Lord, and then the Lord saves us. That's the picture. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. That's why it says, and this is not your own doing. Think about that. It is a gift of God. It's God's grace that you're even exercising faith. And it's a mystery, but he saves us. But it's as simple as a child screaming and Jesus saving or blessing in this moment. John Newton, the former slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, he said, if children are around the front door of the house of the preacher, this is a sign of his love for Christ and vice versa. When children around you, children are redemptive. They help us to see what really matters. They cut through the malaise. They cut through the, uh, the fog of misplaced priorities. They picture heaven. Look at verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You know what heaven is like? This. You die, instant heaven. You die in the lap of Jesus. You die, you're received into eternal comfort. No more dying, no more crying, no more demons, no more pain, just Jesus. I think it was last summer I had this text where I responded to this question that was given. A parent said, my greatest fear when each of my children were born was that they would die before they were believers. I think many agree that newborns which die go to heaven. Is there an age in which a newborn is no longer considered a newborn? And if they were to die, they would not be received into heaven. For instance, what if a two-year-old born to a Christian family that did devotions and prayed... And we prayed for, um, but she may have not fully understood accepting Jesus as her savior, died tragically in a car accident. Where would she go? My own son at age 13 stood up fully accepting Jesus as his savior in tears, fully asking for forgiveness. If at an earlier age, he had tragically died before fully mentally, wholeheartedly accepting Christ, how do we feel confident we will see them in heaven? You know, the best answer I can give is what the text says displays here you know what you and i should do with questions like these do exactly what these parents did what better way to live you say i've blown it my my children are gone they're out of the home i shoulda woulda coulda done better you know my children are 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 not accepting christ yet but they seem beyond the age of accountability what do i do what do i do what do i do you do what these parents did you 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 bring them, you bear them before the throne of Christ and say, you called me to be a Christian who can pray. Let me lift my child to you in prayer and in faith and leave it in the arms of Jesus, right? That's it. That's all you can do. Do what they did. Pray, teach, lead with the influence that you have with children around in the church, but you have to leave your children with the Lord ultimately. Give them to the grace of Christ and trust the providence of God. 